Well, hello everyone, and welcome to this week's exciting episode. It is an exciting episode of Certified Forgotten. If this is your first episode, thank you for listening. This is the only horror podcast I think that really delivers on the promise of underseen horror film. We talk about the films that have five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, which gives us a certain uh, discovery cachet, I think. You're not going to see normal titles here. You're going to see the weird stuff. And for this week, as every week, I am joined by the other Matt, because there's only two Matts that write about horror. I can't name a single other one off the top of my head. It's my buddy, Matt Donato. How you doing, Matt? Doing good. The uh, tournament is complete. All other mats have been vanquished in the horror circle, and we're the only ones left. So congratulations, Monogal. We were supposed to face off, and we threw down our weapons and said, no, I will not kill. We hugged like <laughs> men. It was What beautiful. is this, Podcast Highlander? Go go away, guest. You're not, you're not in here yet. <laughs> oh, hey, we have a guest. Maybe you should introduce him. All right, let me, let me get to the introductions then because our guest has already outed themselves. Uh, with us today, we have a man whose beard is as mighty as his hugs. Mr. John Barkhan, horror critic, producer, executive. You've seen his work on Bloody, Dread, and many other places. So, Jonathan, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I am. I would say that I'm sorry for uh, ruining the surprise, but I, I had to get in that Highlander joke. Yeah, and most people will have seen you in the episode title, so it's not really that surprising. Oh, I like that. I like. I like to do the intro, though. This is my thing. He ruined That's true. it. We took away the one thing you're good at. So, uh, John, first of all, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I'm I'm a little excited about this episode because I've known you for a minute. Um, and But like a lot of guests that I have on the show, like I'm familiar with your work. If you were to say, what has John done over like the last couple of years? I could be like, oh, yeah, John, 2018, 2019. I know what he's about. Here's what he's done. Here's what he's good at. But I don't really know like the whole history of you, right? Like I don't know your upbringing as a horror fan and I don't know kind of like how you earned your stripes within the horror community. So let's start the conversation kind of in the very beginning. You know, we like to ask our guests those first, the first time they remember seeing a horror film and or those first couple of horror films they watched and really what made it, what spoke to them, what made them think this is my genre. So let's hear about early John and horror or uh, early John and horror. What are you, what was it that stuck out at you? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. I'm going to warn you, it gets a little bit heavy. Um, I'll start on the light side of things. The very first horror memory I have uh, that's clear as a bell would probably be this time that I was channel surfing uh, as a young little Barkhan on the couch on a Sunday afternoon. And I came to a stop unknowingly on Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and it was when Joey was having his dream sequence in the in the early you know first act of the film and he pulls the sheets away from his waterbed and there is a beautiful naked woman and he is just smitten and suddenly Freddy bursts through pulls him under and reseals the mattress uh, leaving Joey to drown and when my mom saw what I was watching, she quickly grabbed the controller and changed the channel, which um, probably a smart thing for a parent to do, but the damage was quite already done. Um, but my my real attraction to horror came about because at a very young age, I was, you know, five, maybe six years old, my sister was, older sister was diagnosed with brain cancer, uh, a rather severe form. As a matter of fact, there was pretty much a 
95% chance that she was going to make it. Now, I'll go ahead and jump to the end. She made it. She's still around, so don't worry about that. But it kicked off two years of her being in the hospital, lots of surgeries, operations, chemotherapy. And so I became very used to going into hospitals and being around children who had tubes running in and out of them, many who had to have limbs amputated. Um, just a lot of sickness, disease, and and death, to be honest. But it was it became a very normal thing. These these children weren't monsters or freaks. They were much in the same way with uh freaks, the film. They were they were the ones that we should be sympathetic towards that we should care about. And it was the people who mocked them and berated them that were the true villains. And it was much the same with myself. There were a lot of kids in my, uh, in my classes who would make fun of me about my sister um, and, you know, use her cancer as a way to bring me down. And so horror for me became a great way to, take this kind of unthinkable disease and give it a face, give it a, a purpose, which was to be vanquished. So I fell in love with, are you afraid of the dark? Uh, I was sneaking, watching, you know, every horror movie I could. When I would go for sleepovers to friends' houses, we would stay up and watch Tales from the Crypt. I was playing the Castlevania games on the 8-bit Nintendo. So... I just, I really dove into everything that horror had to offer because what I learned from it was that it was people who were doing everything they could to survive. And I thought that was an incredible message. Uh, and obviously watching, you know, some amazing kills and stunning practical effects didn't hurt, but it was, it was all about seeing people want to live, which was such an important message for me and for my family at the time, even though the rest of the family did not understand, support, or join me on my horror adventures. Yeah, I, I have to ask, because you, you mentioned your mother earlier, um, especially during this time, how were your parents responding to this new uptick in interest in these really gross and graphic horror films? It's an interesting question, because at that time, their minds were were elsewhere. They had a daughter who they didn't know if she was going to be alive in the next minute or not. So what was very frequent was that my father, who is a doctor, he was traveling very frequently to give lectures uh, because they paid very well. Uh, and he could use that money towards co-pays and any bills that might come through. Uh, and my mom at the time she, it was still pretty early on. Uh, it was, I think, within the first decade of my parents having emigrated to the United States. So there were obviously still a lot of things that they had to learn and get accustomed to. But my mom was very often with my sister as much as possible. So I was, in a way, left to my own devices. Obviously, I had babysitters or, you know, family friends would come and watch me. But my parents didn't, they didn't really know that I was getting so deep into genre, um, 
And it was more than just horror. Obviously, I was getting into stuff like Star Wars. And one of my favorite films growing up was Ridley Scott's Legend, um, which has strong horror elements, thanks to Tim Curry. But, you know, it was it was this idea of escapism that was incredibly appealing to me. And it led to me also beginning to read at a pretty young age. And I, once I started reading, I just kept progressing and progressing. So obviously I was into Goosebumps and, um, and Christopher Pike and all of those stories. But I remember I was in, I want to say sixth or seventh grade when R.L. Stein came out with an adult horror novel and I got in trouble reading it. My parents bought it for me because they were like, oh, it's the author of Goosebumps. How bad can it be? Mm-hmm. And I remember that I got in trouble because a kid in school was reading over my shoulder. And it just so happened to be the page where a character was getting a blowjob. So obviously, this kid ran to the to the teacher. The teacher had to confiscate the book. And, you know, my parents were called. And, and they were very apologetic uh, to the school, but at the same time, to them, me reading was something they were very proud of. As long as they were able to put things in context, everything was okay. Yeah, my wife always talks about the fact because she works in publishing, and she got she says that looking back, she read so much stuff that she couldn't shouldn't have read probably at that age, just because it's a book. Like how her parents were like, "How bad could it be? It's a book," and mm-hmm. so filth, filth, and violence galore. Yep, exactly. And I I will say this, you know, in my, when I was about, you know, seven, eight, maybe nine, and again, I was really into uh, the Goosebumps books as they were coming out, our local, I don't know if it was a Barnes and Noble at the time, or if it was a Borders before they went bankrupt, but they had a Goosebumps club. And she was very supportive of me going to that. And I think looking back on it, I wouldn't be surprised if she hated the fact that it was goosebumps, but she loved the idea that I would be hanging out with other children. And for lack of a better way of putting it, normal children, not children who are sick and facing death, but rather the children who are excited about about their sugar-filled cereal the next morning. Well, let's let's fast forward a couple of years then, because um, you know these seeds had been planted under under you know what sounds like pretty harrowing circumstances, and I'm so glad to hear that your family was able to make it through that okay. Um, Thank you. But talk about talk about like you know your your high school experience, your college experience, when you had that sense of horror community. Did that grow with you? Did you continue to gravitate towards people who are interested in the same kind of scary stuff as you? Um, or was it something that just kind of, you, you know, you had whatever friends you had, but it always bubbled a little bit, a little bit below the surface. No, horror was always a part of my, my group of friends. Um, I remember in high school, I was your stereotypical goth. I had steel toe boots, a trench coat, all black clothing. I still have the black clothing, but I, thankfully I've hung up the trench coat and put away the steel toe boots. Um, but, you know, here I was getting the latest Rob Zombie album, Blasting Metallica. And I am uh, I'm about to admit something that is a source of great shame, <laughs> but I had multiple ICP albums. Um, and I, I already know that Donato is 
thrilled with this information. <laughs> I, I'm um, saving this for a rainy day. Don't worry. I won't call it out right now, but. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so, you know, the friends that I hung out with in high school were were into the sort of the darker aspects of entertainment and media. Um, and so, you know, we were always finding horror games to play on, you know, PlayStation, Nintendo 64, I think PS2. Yeah, PS2 came out uh, when I was in high school. And so I was always seeking out those weird and wonderful and terrifying things that were that were there during during my high school lunch break. So my high school was located in downtown Ann Arbor and our lunch was 50 minutes long. So, and our campus was the entirety of downtown. We could go anywhere, do whatever we want, just get back to class and you're a-okay. So I was constantly on my lunch break going to our local comic book shop, The Vault of Midnight. And I was buying Johnny the Homicidal Maniac issues, uh, Squee, Lenore, all the slave labor graphics stuff. Uh, I was also going to Borders and getting into a lot of horror anime and uh, TV series and movies that I was I was getting on VHS when they were on sale. Um, and and I was always sharing them. And I remember there were times when I would when I was able to use my parents car to drive to school. If I had enough time, I would floor it out of school uh, to go to the mall because there was an uh, it was, at that time it was EB Games to pick up. I remember I had two pre-orders that stick out of my mind, Clyde Barker's Undying and American McGee's Alice uh, that I had pre-ordered and I couldn't wait until after school. I had to get it so that when I went home, I could immediately install it rather than, you know, school ends, go to the mall, get it and then go home. Th that hour of time was so precious to me. So, and my friends at that time knew all about it. They supported it. They wanted to uh, experience it. We were sharing things with each other. We were... Uh, it was just very much a part of our lives. And that continued after I left high school. I took a year off uh, to just kind of figure out what I wanted to do because I was not that good in high school. I did not have a great GPA. I was too busy getting stoned and watching, you know, horror movies and learning how to play the guitar. Uh, but then I took a year off where I worked at a coffee shop that was literally right next door to a Hollywood video that was the largest that had the largest library in the United States. They were very proud of the fact that whenever they got the their um, their catalog of upcoming films, they would just put at least a one next to every single title each week. And that included foreign. So I was really exposed to a lot of incredible films from around the world by just every Friday getting my paycheck, depositing it, and then going to the video store and stocking up for, on films for the next five days. And then when I went to the local community college, uh, WCC, I was always seeking out film courses, music production courses, and they also had uh, horror and sci-fi literature and horror and sci-fi film, which were classes that I insisted I take. Uh, and the only reason that my parents thought it was a good, thought it was an okay idea was because you had to take certain number of credits in each field and those counted towards the fields that I was lacking in. So it was a win-win situation. So from the beginning, um, you know, horror has been something that I've pursued regularly at every point in my life. 
And it's funny that, you know, you mentioned the music as well, because for me, I mean, before we even became acquainted, before we even became friends and things of that nature, I was reading bloody religiously and I was, you were like the music guy. Like that, that is how I actually was introduced to you. I would say was just from reading your work and following everything you wrote about on bloody that like was specifically at first, obviously you branched out and did way more on bloody in other places, but you were always like the music guy for me. So like, that was the funny thing of beauty and being like, Oh, I like, holy crap. I've been reading your music reviews and your music stuff for so much longer because I, I didn't have that kind of musical background. You know, I, I play guitar and stuff like that. And, uh, my friends though, they never let me embrace the sides of, uh, rock and roll and things of that nature that reading your stuff, I discovered so much on myself. Oh, well, thank you for that. Yeah. Music was, music was, has always been my second love next to cinema and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I absolutely loved Ridley Scott's Legend when I was growing up, and I had a really, you know, just cheap, terrible Casio keyboard that was battery powered, and uh, I set it down on the floor and would put in Legend, and I would try and figure out how to play the melodies one handed, of course, very often one finger. Um, but I would try and figure out how to play that by ear. And so my parents were like, well, you should obviously take piano lessons. Didn't, it didn't take, I didn't, I didn't want to learn piano. And in elementary school, I studied violin, which I wish I still knew, uh, even just a little bit of, uh, but it was guitar that really, that really sucked me in. And I started learning at about 12, maybe I, I just turned 13. Um, and I stuck with it for ever since. And I've been in several bands that obviously none of them worked. Um, and I took my love of music to WCC, Washington Community College, and they had a certificate program there for music production and engineering, which I earned. So I studied not only music theory and, you know, different applications of music itself, but I also studied how to record, uh, the, uh, the actual ins and outs of being behind a mixing board and getting that kind of experience both in a studio and in a live setting. And that was actually the way that I got into Bloody was I um, I saw one day that there was a music video premiere and I think it was for, I might get the band name wrong, Suicide Silence, I think. That sounds right. It, I honestly, it sounds like a band I, I have heard and listened to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and there was a music video premiere and I went, Oh my God, bloody disgusting is covering music. This is the ultimate intersection of my passions. And so this was, uh, this was way back in the God, that was, it was 2009. So if you use the way back machine, you can see how bloody disgusting looked at the time. And what I did was I clicked on the author name and I sent a message saying, hey, this is who I am. I have a certificate in music production and engineering. I'm a huge horror fan, and I would love to write reviews for Bloody Disgusting. Little did I know that the author of that article was Tom Owen, who is the co-founder of Bloody Disgusting. And he he replied to me, and he was like, hey, you know, that's that sounds good. Let me talk to my partner, uh, and we'll get back to you. They uh, They hit me up, and they said, look, we're ready to test you out. Give us two album reviews and let's see let's see how those turn out. And so I sent them it was Slayer's World Painted Blood and Catatonia's Night is the New Day. Those were the two album reviews I sent. 
And they replied back and said, yeah, it seems you can write. Uh, sure, let's let's give this sh- a shot. Just, you know, Tom said, send me one to two album reviews a month and and that's what we'll do. And I went ballistic. I looked at every CD I owned at the back and I was like, who is the label? Let me find them, reach out to them and say, hey, I'm doing music reviews for Bloody Disgusting. This is an audience that you're not reaching and I am your portal there. Let's get this going. And Metal Blade, Century Media, Nuclear Blast, like all of them immediately responded back saying, yes, this is so cool. We love this idea. On top of sending you CDs and digital downloads of albums for review, uh, do you want to go to this concert and interview the band face to face? And I went, uh, yeah, of course. And then next thing I know, they're like, do you want to give away a guitar on Bloody Disgusting? And I said, without a doubt, I want to do that. Um, and it was just this really, it was an explosion of opportunities and content that I, that I, you know, was seeking out. And so back then, the way it worked was I would write stuff, I would send it to Tom, and he would post it under my name. And finally, I was sending him so much that he... He wrote, this is crazy. I can't keep doing this. Here's an account. I'm going to show you how to write articles on your own and just just go to town. All you, I don't care. I'm washing my hands of this. I can't keep doing this. Uh, and I just went ballistic. So it went from one to two album reviews a month to five to 10 articles a week. Uh, and then five to 10 articles a day. And within six months, I was the editor of the music section, and I did that for several years. Uh, and I was good friends with TJ, Tom's cousin, who was running the video game section. So I would occasionally write some stuff for him. And then I started branching out into uh, TV. I remember I wrote an article about horror-inspired South Park episodes. Um, and that apparently performed really well. And then I just kept helping with the movie section, Brad would say, Hey, I'm running a little bit behind. Can you, can you knock some stuff out for me? And so I would. And next thing I know, I was spread all over the site. And then I started representing bloody at conventions. And then I was going to film festivals. And next thing you know, I was the managing editor. And yeah, that's, I, I like to say that I pestered my way into writing for bloody. And then I just kept I like to joke that I kept failing upward, but I think that's, I think it's a bit disingenuous. I, I, I will fully admit that it was a lot of hard work combined with a fair amount of luck. Yeah. I I would not say failing upward in the least because I make those jokes too. But the fact of the matter is if you were failing, you wouldn't be going upward. I I mean, you, if you were failing, the bloody wouldn't be keeping around. If I was failing, I wouldn't be getting more opportunities and things of that nature. So it's, it's, it's the funny joke to make, but you weren't failing. I can, I can sure as hell tell you, because again, I didn't know who the hell you were in 2009, 2010. I was still going to college myself and doing all that stuff. But you know, I was reading bloody every day and it was like, I I knew that name, that name was just everywhere. Like you said, and it's like, you don't get to do that by failing. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Yeah, it's, I, I, I mean, you, you know me, Matt. I mean, both, both of you know me. It, self-deprecation is second nature to myself. But I, I think that there is something to be said about kind of patting ourselves on the back every once in a while. And, and the two of you are incredible examples of that, you know, just having, having worked so hard and then creating your own site and creating your own podcast that is churning out genuinely important 
and valuable content. So, and, and having said that, now I am wondering why the hell you, you have me on here. <laughs> we like to shake it up every now and then. We like to get the people ent- entertained, we'll say. <laughs> well, it's actually funny to me, John, that you shared the kind of the story about how you came to work at, at Bloody in the way that you did. Because if you asked me to describe you, if you were to say, you know, you heard the, you heard the, the introduction, horror writer, producer, and executive, um, and you do all of those things and you do them well. But I think... The thing that I come back to when, whenever you know I have an opportunity to spend time with you at a festival is you are just the guy who sees how the pieces fit together. And that could be distribution, that could be film criticism, that could be journalism, that could be the creative element of it. Whatever it is, you are the person that knows the people, sees the connections that need to be made to make people successful and is always happy to set up those connections. So you might describe that as, as you know failing upwards or whatever it may be, but I think of you as the person that just knows if someone has a question, you either know the answer or more importantly, you know the person that that person needs to talk to. And you've kind of, you know, you've created this ecosystem of really talented creatives and writers and producers, and you facilitate so much success for the people in that community because you know, you know who's who, you see how those pieces fit together. So that's, I like that that bloody disgusting origin story for you kind of fits the narrative that I had in my head of like, you were just someone who saw how those pieces could fit together. Well, thank you. I... My mentality has always been has always been very simple. It's how can I use my voice, my resources and the platform that I'm working with to help others. Um it's it's it, it just it makes sense because so many people have done that for me and I want to return the favor because I'm very much of the mindset that fresh voices are so vital to keeping things interesting and keeping things advancing. And that's not to say that it's me necessarily. Uh, As you said, I love to introduce people to the people they should know, Um, whether it's, you know, a critic to a festival programmer, because I think that the critic would be a phenomenal jury member or voice to cover that festival, or if it's filmmakers with um, with critics, so that their their project can get the attention it deserves. The it, I I just always had this mentality that if you help those around you, then it's going to come back in some way. And that's not to sound selfish, and it's not to sound self serving, but it because I I don't know how it's going to come back. I'm never concerned with you know, collecting on favors or, um, or, you know, getting a debt repaid. That's not, that's not who I am. When I say that it's going to come back, I mean that it will happen in a way that I don't, I don't expect and I don't seek. And if, and it can be something as simple as knowing that the people that I helped are happy and they're advancing because that's ultimately what matters. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, to just to bounce off of that really quickly, this isn't at all to uh, rustle feathers or anything of that nature, but when you had an opportunity at Dread to do something and you were given the, the chance to bring people in and kind of reshape how that site was being read and how content was hitting that site, I mean, the first thing you did was you called me, you called Anya, you called Zena, you called Brennan Klein, and you're like, yo, you guys want columns? Because we need your kind of voice here because we need to shake things up a little bit. I mean... It, yeah, 100%. It's it's not you thinking about 
how can I take over? How can I do all these things? But like the minute you had a platform, you immediately thought how to bring in other people and also how to use that platform to be like, we need to change something for the better. Like you identified something immediately and, you know, that's, it's a testament to that kind of mentality, I would say. It's, I mean, I, I, I often tell people this, uh, I never thought of myself as a good writer. It was not something that I heavily studied. It's not something that I really was, I wasn't the type of person to go out and get books on how to write better, how to write more cleverly. Um, I always felt that my writing was very serviceable in that it got information across. And I thought that that was, that was okay. That's what I needed to do. But where I felt that I did have a, um, a strength was just as the two of you were saying is finding the voices that are better than me and putting aside any ego that I have and recognizing that it's okay for there to be people who are more talented than myself. It's my job as an editor to recognize that and to cultivate that and to make sure that they have the platform so they can get the recognition they deserve. And as you said, to, kind of raise the impression of the platform itself. So whether it's, you know, like you say, getting yourself and Anya, Zena, and Brennan for Dread or finding, you know, new and exciting voices at Bloody. I remember there were many times that I was working with writers, including one, there was a young girl in, in high school and she was, she said, if I'm, if I can write for you, I can apply that towards my high school credits. And I said, perfect. I love it. Let's, if this is what you want to do, let's make this happen. And she, and she was a little rough around the edges, but you could tell that there was serious talent there. And it was such a pleasure to be able to see her voice grow with, as she got more and more assignments. So yeah, I think that's, you know, this is all to say that I, I appreciate what the two of you are saying. And it, and it means a lot to know that the way that I view myself is how others view me too. Most of the time. Most of the time, yeah. Except for when I listen to ICP, which you're still holding on to. A hundred percent. You have no <laughs> idea. Well, however, however you uh, do view our dear friend John Barkin, in about 30 minutes, you are going to view him as the world's leading expert and proponent of the Crimson Rivers 2, Angels of the Apocalypse. So... When we come back, let's get to the movie at hand. Hey everybody, are you interested in a bonus episode of Certified Forgotten? Well, I am proud to say that Matt Donato and I are bringing our little podcast that could to the very first run of the Real Love Film Festival. This is a virtual film festival event dedicated to honoring the future of love on screen, and it's going to be running from just February 10th to 14th. Buy a ticket and you'll be able to hear a very special episode where our guests are the co-hosts of Collider's Witching Hour, Haley Fouch and Perry Nemiroff. We're going to be talking about Breaking Surface, which is a 2020 film that did not get enough love, and yes, still qualifies for that five or fewer reviews category. So buy your tickets online at reallovefest, R-E-E-L, lovefest.com. Tickets for the program are as little as $10, and you'll be able to hear this once-in-a-lifetime episode of Certified Forgotten. It's happening at the festival, and it's never happening again. So buy now and enjoy. 
Oh, welcome back. So today we're going to be talking about the Crimson Rivers to Angels of the Apocalypse. And I do want to throw out um, just a very quick warning ahead of time that this is a film that was scripted by Luc Besson. His influence on this film is pretty heavy. And if you know from following headlines, he is a pretty bad dude who has a lot of assault charges. So if you are not going to support a film by Luc Besson, you are more than welcome to turn this podcast off right now. We won't judge you for it. If you want to continue, well, let's talk about the film. So if you were a video store geek at the turn of the century, then you no doubt remember The Crimson Rivers, which was the 2000 horror thriller from French director Mathieu Kassovitz. That film, which starred Jean Reno as respected police detective and Vincent Cassel as his young counterpart, was sort of like an unexpected success. It grossed $60 million internationally when that kind of number still meant something and was kind of a big deal, especially in a time where it was harder to get foreign films. The Crimson Rivers 2, Angels of the Apocalypse, traded Kassovitz's adaptation for a new script by... Luc Besson. Renault is back, and this time he is hot on the heels of a doomsday cult that it is determined, determined to break the seventh seal and bring about the worst parts of the Book of Revelations. While the film was heavily indebted to American police thrillers, Angels of the Apocalypse stacks the deck with monk assassins, police parkour, and Christopher Lee as an admittedly very dapper Nazi. <laughs> if that sounds like a lot to unpack, well, it's probably because it is. So let's start with what I think is the most important question for John. John, nobody understands, nobody knows the margins of independent horror better than you. And yet you picked what will probably be the most expensive and high profile certified forgotten title of all time. So I got to start with the obvious question. (laughs) Why? Oh, that is because it's amazing to me how few people in the genre field seem to have heard of these films and I don't know if it was because I was that video store geek that was getting everything I could get my hands on but I saw The Crimson Rivers and fell in love the first one I absolutely loved it uh, I have the DVD on my shelf I'm I can see it right from where I'm sitting and it's I bought it I want to say gosh at this point it must have been 15, 16 years ago, and that DVD has stuck with me for a very long time. And so when I saw that there was a sequel, I just blind bought it. I didn't even care. I was like, yes, it's Jean Reno. He's back. I'm done. I want this. And these kinds of films are... Um, let me ask you, am I allowed to swear on here? Yes. Wait, em- emphatic yes. Go ahead. 100%. Okay. So Crimson Rivers 2 is the perfect example of my shit it is serial killer horror with religious mystery and this weird little sprinkling of indiana jones just Mm -hmm. everything about this movie is so over the top and it never once the movie begins it never lets up there is not really a break at any point in this film and i just i adore it for how batshit it is yeah episode over that's that's it in a nutshell right (laughs) no i like i i i love that we're having this conversation right now because you aren't privy to this but donato and i have been having a series of one-off conversations about um spanish filmmaker alex de la iglesias and you know part of that has been he's gotten me to watch 30 coins which is going to be my introduction to his work but like watching 30 coins kind of felt a lot like watching Angel of the Apocalypse for all the reasons you said. There's like an archaeology element and there's religious overtones, but there's fun body horror and like serial killer stuff too. And you just, 
you know, my initial impression of watching this film for the first time. And I went back and watched the Crimson Rivers for the first time, probably in 20 years um, for this episode as well is just like, God, remember when movies used to do way too much? And like, that was kind of great. Yeah. And there's just something about the the tone of these films that is intoxicating, where even in both films, there is just this unending sense of dread that is hovering over everything. Every scene, you're waiting for the shock, for the horror, for something to go wrong, for, you know, the mystery to reveal, a, to give you an answer, but at the same time, that answer gives you two more questions that you then have to just enter the rabbit hole to figure out what exactly is going on. And are they convoluted? Without a doubt. To this day, when I'm watching The Crimson Rivers, I feel like I need to take notes to figure out what is going on with this mountain town and eugenics mm. and a 20-year-old uh, murder slash accident and Vincent Cassell is beating up Nazis to video game music while you have the you know the game voiceover saying player three has entered the game you know just it's such a crazy mix of everything that bleeds over into the sequel it's it's the same kind of feel and again I don't know what it is but it's it's my shit I just I drink it up well, I think a little bit of my shit is the fact that I, I it happened to be my shit. Number one, <laughs> I do, I do want to say that uh, this happened to be right up my alley. And if I can guess to as why maybe it excites you this much, um, me watching the films in 2021, I didn't watch them when they came out. Like I wasn't as involved in the film scene, you know, as, as either of you were, especially not you, Barkhan, you know, I wasn't going to the movie store to rent every little independent horror thriller, stuff of that nature. I came into this late. So my discovery process is kind of based on going backwards. And it's unique in the sense that I'm more knowledgeable on the popular stuff that's come out over the, the last decade. So stuff of that nature, but I watched something like Crimson Rivers 2 and I go, where are these movies? You know, like, where have these movies been hiding in the sense that we haven't had something along this lines in its extraness, as we've already stated, in a while? Like, I can only tie it to Deliver Us from Evil, Derrickson's film, uh, in in some ways in that we actually have this wacky police procedural that is also deep infested into horror. Or, like, A Walk Amongst the Tombstones, where I'm watching uh, Jean Renault and going, like, well, if this was an American movie, that'd be Liam Neeson, obviously. And all of these things are like clicking in the sense that we have to go back to the year this was released just to have that sensation again. I feel like the nostalgia and the comfort for these movies is the sense that Hollywood's gotten away from this over-the-topness in its mainstream films. We don't really have this kind of engagement in the sense that it's not just a true crime thriller with religious and horror overtones. Again, parkour priest Nazis. Like, like that is that that statement right there is the fact that like we have we don't get things like this that often. Don't don't forget they're not just parkour priest Nazis. They're parkour priest Nazis amped up on meth. Yep. Like important distinction there. Hundred percent. Like, if you, if if someone were to go and try to pitch this to Netflix now, unless it were some like some series where you can really tie it in, you would probably be laughed out of the room because it sounds like some schlocky B trauma kind of thing, but it's not. It's something that is 
that, yeah, they give it an explanation and it's very flimsy, but they are so dedicated to keeping it serious that you can't help but admire and just accept that this is what exists in this small cinematic universe. Yeah, and we, I mean, it's it's really hard to watch something like this and not appreciate sort of the context in which it was released, right? Because mm -hmm. this was released in the same year as District B-13, um, which is another Basan Europa Corp film. And of course, Europa Corp has done all of the, like you, you mentioned Liam Neeson earlier, Donato. There's a reason for that. It's because people like Basan were taking American actors and kind of juicing their career with these hybrid French international American thrillers. And it's just like, this is... This is a film that sort of, you know, I might even argue is like the perfection of all those different formats that they were going for. So you're seeing something that is both informed by and informing so much of the American action stuff that would follow. You know, now you can throw a stone and hit a talented French director who's come up through the ranks on one of these kind of movies. It's such an it's such an interesting film and it, and it exists in such an interesting kind of back and forth between American and international cinema and genre cinema in particular that like, yeah, you're just like, of course it would have all of these different elements because all of those films have all of these different elements and it can sustain it because it's just, it's just so over the top. I mean, can you, can you imagine trying to explain, I'm about to get into a little bit of spoiler territory, like very much into spoiler territory, but can you imagine trying to go to someone and tell them, yeah, I'm watching this horror heavy serial killer film and it ends with a a like a tomb of a french king from the ninth century that holds a secret treasure that is said to make the vatican shake in its boots and it gets flooded by a man-made lake and our heroes escape by chugging down vials of amphetamines while christopher lee uh just decides you know what I got the book. The place is filling with water. I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to off myself. That, that seems like a reasonable course of, of events. It's, it's yeah. so over the top and so crazy that it, it just, it defies all logic, but they did it. And I respect the hell out of them for saying, yeah, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And not only did they do it, I, I think to harken back a little bit to what we were talking about, but they did it in a serious manner. They, they didn't mm -hmm. shortchange anything. They, they didn't shortchange the budget. I mean, there are these sequences where old German turrets come out of the ground and just start spewing machine gun bullets. Or you have some pretty fun effects with the blood work and the quote-unquote like CSI forensic stuff that comes out of nowhere with these like blue light kind of basically like x-ray machines and they can like look at things that used to be there. And it, it's crazy. Like we've said over and over again, it's crazy, but it's also taken serious by everyone making it. And it's not a joke ever. Like, you know, as this is as much of like the Da Vinci code in a way, but the Da Vinci code with way more action and way more butt kicking. And yeah, Christopher Lee is a Nazi who comes out of nowhere. And you're like, Oh, Christopher Lee's here, I guess. <laughs> and that I remember when I, I, like I say, I blind bought this, and if I'm right, his name is on the cover, and I was like, what? How? And then he comes in, and here he is speaking incredibly solid French, uh, rattling off some Italian. He, you know, knocks out a bit of German. His 
he says two words in Russian and growing up in a Russian household, I can tell you that his Russian is nowhere near as good as his French, but here he is just being perfectly Christopher Lee, but he's not speaking English. And for me, that was such an amazing and wonderful moment because it helped me remember that a lot of the people we love do so much more outside of what we normally take in. And so for us to seek it out, we're going to find some incredible gems like like this. Is this film perfect? Under no circumstances. Yes. Oh, sorry. No. But <laughs> it's, it's not perfect, you know, on, in any stretch of the imagination. But it's a film that I am very happy to revisit. Both of them. I have no problem. I would have no problem if uh, my wife Ariel said, hey, do you want to marathon uh, both of the Crimson Rivers films today? I would say, yes, get the popcorn going. We're doing this. And it's a, it's a really interesting, like Crimson Rivers too, right? So a little context for the people that are listening. Crimson, both, both of these films, we'll talk about this in a minute, but both of these films hard to find. Crimson Rivers, if you grew up in like blockbuster Hollywood video generation, I was a teenager, like 2001, I was 17 years old. So I was very much of the mind that I was like, Jean Reno, he's the guy from Leon and he's the guy from Godzilla because, you know, that was my range of potential <laughs> outcomes. I was like, I love him. I'm going to go seek this movie out. Crimson Rivers, what, and, and there was a period in time where this film was ubiquitous. You could not go into a video store without seeing it everywhere. Um, but Crimson Rivers 2 barely made a, a peep. You know, I, I don't remember seeing this one growing up. And so you think like, all right, this is going to be a worse version, right? That's going to be a cash cow. They're just going to try and repeat the same beats from the first one. And it's going to be lesser. And I think Crimson Rivers 2, Angels of the Apocalypse, because that's its full name and that's ridiculous in and of itself. <laughs> it's such a fascinating example of where sequels being more can sometimes be sequels being better. Because when you break it down into the story elements, there's a lot of repetition here. You are introduced to the young police officer through the same prolonged fight sequence, somebody who's a surprisingly good martial artist. There is a chase, the, the chase foot race in the first movie, which is beautiful, like beautifully shot and such a harrowing little like foot race between one of the villains and Vincent Cassell's character is repeated this time. But now it's amped up with like so much more parkour. It's almost as if you took um, every scene in the first movie and said, here's the construct, here are the building blocks of what this movie is. How do we take each one of these little sequences and turn it up to 11? And I, it's, it's fascinating because it works, because everything is more in Crimson Rivers 2. And rather than that being less, it does make it more fun and exciting and engaging, I think. Yeah, and I think that also, it, it depends on how you're approaching them. Because what I... You know, it reminds me when people talk about the difference between Resident Evil and Silent Hill, and they say Resident Evil is to aliens what Silent Hill is to The Shining. And if I were to try and use the same method when talking about the two Crimson Rivers films, is, you know, Crimson Rivers is to Seven what Crimson Rivers 2, Angels of the Apocalypse, is to something like Kiss the Girls or Along Came a Spider. But as I said, with that little, you know, sprinkle of Indiana Jones thrown into the mix. And... You know, yes, Kiss the Girls and Along Came a Spider and Seven, they're all kind of serial killer in investigative uh, films, but they definitely have very unique feels to them. They have very specific tones. And the first Crimson Rivers, I, w I would argue, is, is definitely more serious. And that's not to say that the sequel is kind of playing with itself or, or you know, poking fun at itself mm. in any way. Uh, it's just that the first one is so serious 
Uh, and there are times when that really works for me. And then the sequel, as we say, it's, it's, you know, meth driven parkour, uh, monks that are Nazis and later on have no problem holding, you know, machine guns and using them with reckless abandon. It's, it's crazy when you say it out loud, but yeah, they take it seriously. And I'm not smart enough to, to be able to make these connections, but there is, you know, my, my thing is always like, I want to read somebody, I want to read the, the academic study that somebody wrote about this kind of stuff. And I'm really, I'm really fascinated by the way that both of these films resurface the idea of Nazism and being 2021, unfortunately, super relevant themes, but you know, you feel the sense that like, yes, these are, these are thrillers and they're genre films and they're, they're slight or not slight to varying degrees, but there's a sense of like grappling with history, localized history and like traumas that have occurred generations before in these areas, especially with the, the first Crimson Rivers. And you're, you're just, you're kind of like, A, Nazis are always perfect bad guys because fuck them all. But also B, it's like, oh, there's like, there is an idea, like capital I idea here about what this means and what these, in Crimson Rivers 2, what these these tunnel systems mean, the ramifications and implications of World War II and what it meant to be in the French countryside during that period, et cetera, et cetera. You're like, you're not, there, there are concepts here that make them really fun examples of national cinema too. Yeah, I think we, I think we need to remember that when we are viewing foreign cinema, specifically from Europe, their memory uh, their collective memory of World War II is going to be vastly different from ours simply from a geographic standpoint. Because let's not forget that when World War II ended, uh, the French were still next-door neighbors to the Germans who had invaded them and, you know, raped, pillaged, and plundered. Um, and there's there was so much grief and strife and, and horror that they had to grow from. And when we look at the themes of Nazism, I mean, let's let's not forget that anti-Semitism is the number one hate crime globally for the past decade. And these films came out, were produced and released not long before that. So it's not like, you know, Nazis and white supremacists and these nationalists came out of nowhere 10 years mm -hmm. ago and, and exploded. They were there. They were building, they were growing. These were themes that were highly relevant. Um, there was, uh, during the French extremity, there was a film that the name is escaping me for some reason. It starred Samuel Lebihan from Brotherhood of the Wolf, uh, where these robbers leave Paris amidst the riots and they stumble across a sort of a farmstead and the people there are, are Nazis and they just go crazy on these on these criminals that have come to their home um i, I cannot remember the name and i that's not it. it's not the pack is it no it's not the pack you know what i'm at my computer give me one second samuel lebihan uh horror film let's do that uh frontiers on google yes. oh front there yes frontiers i was mi i was mixing that up with uh the pack for some reason yeah so you know when you look at French cinema, it's. I'm willing to bet that there are a lot of films that, in some way, shape, or form, are tackling the issues of nationalism, uh, Nazis, the lasting impacts of World War II, uh, 
Um, and if we even take the original Crimson Rivers, which came out in 2000, so let's assume that the production happened in 1999, that's only 54 years after the end of World War II. So the the elderly people in that film could very well have been alive during that time, and we don't know what side they were on. And that's, I think, what makes this such a... So unsettling is that a lot of these characters, they lived it. They were in it. Obviously, they made Christopher Lee someone who was quite literally uh, in the Nazi party. But this is a very real issue. And these films are tackling them in their own kind of fantastical, creative ways. Mm-hmm. Which is, as and I, I agree with you, uh, Monagle, that finding someone who could approach it from an academic perspective would be absolutely fascinating because there is something there. There is a French cinema has very clearly has something to say about that. And I want to know what that is. And I think also too, like the insidiousness of the film, especially is how Christopher Lee's Nazi character uses religion so easily to mask his entire plan. And, and the way he, he knows what he wants and he knows he wants this treasure, you know, that's been left by this King that can bring up, bring apart the the apocalypse and to do that he just buys a monastery and starts using that as a cover and then starts framing the murders after the 12 apostles in the sense that he is targeting the quote-unquote 12 apostles and all of that stuff tied into the pure of race that he starts talking about and the one faith at the end it just hits everything it hits every note that it's not afraid to wade in those waters where i think uh, stateside cinema there i think at times there's a sense that you want to keep religion out of it you want to be mass marketable you, you want to be selling your movie to the most amount of people at all times so why would we get that deep into religion because some people don't want to hear about it in their entertainment where i mean crimson rivers too makes an entire batshit bananas crime out of it and, and just goes into a full force and that's what makes it so diabolical in ways and also so in it's it's very individual as a film doing what it's doing yeah no i completely agree yeah it's it's definitely like kind of a through the looking glass moment where you're seeing american popular cinema reflected back at you through another culture with all of the historical antecedents or what a precedence that um you just talked about john and it's recognizable and not recognizable at the same time and that makes it I think that little bit of unfamiliarity makes it exciting. And as a viewer, you know, yes, is this Paul W.S. Anderson more than Paul Thomas Anderson? hundred percent. But that makes, that makes the stuff that it's dealing with kind of those thematic elements that underpin the really good action sequences and the really good gore that the movie has to offer. It swirls together in a way that I don't, I don't know if an American film could get away with kind of balancing that many things. I, I, I don't think it, an American film could. And I think it all comes back to the fact that the, that American filmmakers simply don't have the experience and that's not to shame them. That's not to, you know, speak ill or, or look down at them for that. It's simply that we, I think we all recognize that people who grow up in different circumstances have different experiences and as a result, see things in different ways. And that doesn't mean that it's any better or any worse. It's simply is another avenue by which to approach something and that's what makes it so fascinating and that's and i and i think you're helping me realize what it is that i love about this film so much 
beside the fact that it's it's so extra and so fun and 100% my shit, um, it's that it is saying something. It's unafraid to paint Nazis as villains, as horrible people in no uncertain terms, and it's not afraid to tackle those difficult issues, even if it's in a way that is palatable. Because I think if we look at American cinema that tries to tackle issues of nationalism and Nazis, you you end up getting films like American History X, where it is in your face. There is no way to mistake the intentions of that film. There is no way to miss the point of it. Whereas with Crimson Rivers 2, you can say, hey, it's just a really fascinating uh and fun serial killer investigation movie. And then someone goes, and it's also about uh, kind of the lasting impacts of World War II and how nationalism has never really died. And that first person will go, oh yeah, it also does that. So yeah, the, the best horror, the best horror for my, for my money, the stuff that always really excites me is when I go in and then come out and I'm like, oh, I learned something. There was actual substance there that I'm going to grapple with for a little while. And I still got to watch people get chopped up. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was all last year. That was all of La Llorona and Sputnik mm-hmm. and just going the lines of, you know, in Pedagor, all the national cinema we got in horror specifically, because there was such a lack of stateside horror. I think that was a beautiful moment in the sense that none of those movies got overshadowed by the big ticket American films that don't have as much to say, but again, we're in America. So that's where the large mass is going to gravitate towards, but you know that, it, like you just said, it the best intersection of horror for me as well are the horror films that take the horrors of humanity. And I kind of hate saying that because it's probably even said over and over again. But again, taking the horrors of humanity and showing that like you don't need to create monsters because they already exist and we see them. You know, there's no reason to go the fantastical route twenty four seven. You can just take the real monsters every day and make a movie out of them. And I, I think Crimson River kind of really does that, but it does it while also doing parkour shenanigans and action. Yeah, yep. in a gunfight that feels directly lifted out of like a, I don't know, like a music video, right? Like a heavy metal music video. It, it suddenly flares into that. I was watching it. I was like, I think I've seen this music video. It's it's funny that you mention that because the director, Olivier Dahan, uh, did a bunch of music videos primarily for the Cranberries. So if you think that it has a music video feel to it, it's because that's where he kind of cut his teeth. And he also directed La Vie and Rose. So... Which was Dude's his the range. next feature. Dude's got was, the range is what we're saying. <laughs> it was his next feature. He was like, yeah, I'm going to do a movie about uh, meth monks. And then I'm going to go ahead and do La Vie and Rose. And everyone was like, yep, go for it. This is France. And that progression makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, we usually, to kind of wrap up conversations about the film, we usually talk about the reception. And I think that's, I think that's a meteor, meteor thing to talk about here because you know, for most of these movies that we discuss on Certified Forgotten, they cost 20 bucks to make. Um, they popped in and out of a film festival for a second and were gone, right? And like, you're yeah. sort of like, oh, why didn't it make a lasting impact? It's like, well, eight people saw it and it's really good, but that's eight people. And they told eight people and then it died there. That was it, 16 people total. Um, for something like Crimson Rivers 2, Angels of the Apocalypse, it is on the heels of a really high profile international release that had a really robust home video distribution here in the United States. You know, it has Jean Reno, which is an international star. This guy's a household name. Even if you don't know French film, you're like, hey, Jean Reno. 
And yet here we are 20 years later, it has Christopher Lee. Like there aren't like, how can a Christopher Lee film, any Christopher Lee film go undiscovered at this point? People have poured over, combed through his filmography to find every great performance they can. And yet this movie is just, it's gone. Like it might as well not exist. So John, I want to talk to you about that. Like what, how do you, how do you, I don't know, grapple with the fact that there's this movie that costs $20 million to make coming off a film that was a box office success internationally. And yet here we're talking about it on the same show where we're talking about, you know, low budget Brazilian films that played at one theater for a week, right? Like this seems such the antithesis of a certified forgotten film and it's just as gone. I think, I think it's very, you know, it's interesting if you had asked me, you know, 10 years ago, uh, as I was just getting into this, into this world, I, I wouldn't be able to give you an answer. I would say, I have no idea. How can people not know about it? It's so cool and it's so fun and they have to be watching it. But now having the experience of being in distribution and understanding how the system works, it is absolutely astonishing how many films we do not know about, that we will never hear about, that we will never be able to see, that are phenomenal, that are just outside of our reach. And it's simply because the harsh reality of our system is that subtitled movies do not perform well. And people don't like watching dubbed films, typically because they hate seeing mouth movements that don't match the audio that they're hearing. So it's it's all down to to business. I think Crimson Rivers what what it brought to the table was Jean Reno who people knew from uh Godzilla. you know Godzilla. as you said Godzilla, Godzilla. Uh, yes. the professional La Femme Nakita um you know there were there were plenty of movies that he he definitely was a household name but it's a very I think they were worried it was a flash in the pan situation that it did extremely well. Are they willing to take that risk on a sequel that is, for lack of a better way of putting it, a little more batshit crazy? And it definitely, from what I gather, it did not receive nearly the same critical acclaim that the first one did and the first one didn't receive universal critical acclaim let's be let's be honest it was very well received but it wasn't something that was like oh my god this is the greatest movie of the year um so when you've got a movie that has you know more positive than negative reviews then you're going to go with it but then you get a, a sequel which already that's going to taint things and it's subtitled so now you're like well no one's going to buy it and the reviews were not as good as the first one. Those are three strikes against a film that deserved to have more love thrown its way. Because as as we've said, it has a lot to offer. It just needed people who believed in it. So am I disappointed that this film doesn't have, that it never got the eyeballs that it should have gotten? undoubtedly uh do i understand why it kind of it, it, it never even had a chance to fade into obscurity it just landed there for the majority of u.s audiences i fully understand it it makes all the sense in the world to me well let me ask yeah. a, a follow-up question to that if i can john you know obviously 
you don't know the books on this movie. You don't know how it exists, you know, what the battles were, who was trying to acquire it, yada, yada. But it does seem to me that this film also came out about the time that video on demand and streaming was starting to enter the equation a little bit too. And I do feel like this mid 2000, 2005, 2010 era is a particularly robust wasteland for a lot of movies that that kind of got caught in this physical versus video media you know, situation that we were trying to establish and navigate simultaneously. So do you think that can play into it? Do you think that the movies from this period of release are particularly prone to having rights issues that are just never going to be unpacked? I think that's a that's a that's a difficult situation to to explore because when you have foreign titles, uh, especially in Europe, you never know where the money's going to come from, and it might come from multiple countries, which brings into the equation those countries rights and and the different producers and what you know what rights they hold and how things can be moved about so i think that led to some issues when it came to the origins of streaming and the titles that could be put into libraries and again if you know a lot of times people that acquired films for release overseas they had very, very specific rights. So, for example, I wouldn't be surprised if whomever released Crimson Rivers 2, Angels of the Apocalypse, in the United States on DVD only got the rights for physical releases. And that's it. They were not allowed to do anything with streaming. They were not allowed to do theatrical. They were not allowed to do TV. Uh, It was just, you can put together the DVD and put it out, and that's it. Make your money from that and get away from us. And so... You have to consider what were the right situations at the time? What were people thinking when it came to streaming? I mean, let's be honest. A lot of people thought streaming was going to be a flash in the pan. I remember as a as a sort of example of that, you know, when the early days of the internet, uh, when my family and I were constantly getting those AOL discs in those cardboard cases... Uh, finally, my parents one day were like, fine, we'll, we'll see what the internet is and we'll, and we'll give it a shot. And so I put in the disc, we started installing it and it was going through the forms to, um, to create an account. And it asked for, uh, a credit card number. And my mom said, under no circumstances whatsoever, will I do this? That's just not happening. I refuse to give my credit card. Now it's no one thinks twice about it. Everyone's like, I'm buying something online and it doesn't matter where it's from. I'm just going to do it. Does it have the, is it HTTPS? I'm good to go. Give them, give them my credit card number. Uh, but at the time it was, it was anathema. Who could honestly believe that that was safe and secure? And it was the same thing with streaming. Everyone was just kind of trying to figure out, is this actually a thing? And should we invest in it? Should we make it something that we want to include in our business model? And so by the time it really started taking off, a lot of films like this were were just gone. No one remembered them. So there was no, it wasn't even that there was no point in trying to add it to the service. It's that no one even thought to. Yeah, I was going to just tie it back to even saying uh, The Nameless uh, when we talked about that with Joe Lipset in the sense of international's a gamble and international's a gamble that, uh, it's tied to all these right things that John has just laid out, which a hundred percent, because it still is, there's still all those right things that go on. We still see the cases of like tomb bad and things of that nature where 
they just appear on Amazon Prime someday and you're like, wait, didn't even get announced? Didn't even get distribution? How to get there? International is always going to have that sense of studios kind of tiptoeing around it and going like, well, do we really want to? And especially that early, it, it just never had a shot. It just never had that ability to get out there and uh, being something with subtitles, which is so unfortunate because mm-hmm. subtitles are great. Nothing wrong with them. See a lot of great movies with subtitles, but for that long ago and for how cinema was appreciated, I, I just don't even think that people were appreciating international cinema as much 2004, which doesn't sound that far away, but at this time it, it was a different time. And I think another thing that people have to remember is you know, if a movie does really well overseas, because to my knowledge, Crimson Rivers 2 did actually really well theatrically in France. And when that happens, if a movie does really well, it's very easy for producers to get big heads and expect outrageous MGs or, you know, uh, licensing agreements that are going to heavily favor them uh, for foreign sales. And a lot of those foreign distribution companies are going to go one we can't afford that and two that's not worth it in the slightest for us so no we're just we're, we're not going to do that and that's how a lot of films end up getting kind of rave reviews through the film festival circuit and then never appear in uh you know in North America. And that's because so many, and this is not to blame critics because that's the last thing that I'm trying to do here. But when, when a ton of critics give a film a bunch of praise and it's getting, you know, audience awards and, you know, uh, the festival choice award, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, there is the, uh, there is the chance that producers will take all of that and expect to get, they'll expect to just rake in the money and make it, an outstanding payday and the reality is hey yeah you're you're getting all this attention and all this love but that doesn't mean that it's a sellable product or that doesn't mean that we're not taking risks by releasing this so you kind of have to meet us halfway and a lot of producers simply don't want to do that well you said you didn't want to throw critics under the the bus i'll throw critics as (laughs) as, as, as an active critic i'll throw us under the bus a little bit you know, the one thing that I'll, that I'll add to the conversation about kind of distribution is if a movie doesn't exist on VOD, it's not part of our critical conversation anymore. And that's, that's on us. Um, that's a failure of the industry to not, you know, still like, it's an interesting, I always, I always like to talk about academia, you know, film critics, popular film critics sometimes like to think of ourselves as being the people that are creating discussions. We're creating, you know, we're talking about films that never been talked about. And there are probably a hundred buried academic essays, papers that people have written about every film we could hopefully think of that somebody was just like, oh, I wrote it for a class because I really like that movie, right? Like the academic world lives at a different gear than we do. And I think this kind of film, Crimson Rivers, Angels of the Apocalypse is a good example of that because if you search for critical reception on the internet, if you go looking for people talking about this film, you'll find contemporary reviews and then you'll find not a lot of other film criticism, but you will find academic shit. There's a really good essay by Thomas Pollard and a French reader, uh, you know, a introduction to French cinema thing that talks about crime cinema in France in the early 2000s and the role that this, these two films kind of played in there. And I would bet you all the money in the world that the fact that this film is available in libraries and not on VOD means the academic world cares and the popular criticism world doesn't. 
And that's a, that's a bummer to me is that, you know, if we can't, so much of this is, and it's not entirely on the critics because we're going to write about the type of films that consumers want to see. Consumers can't see this stuff unless they order it off eBay like I did. So there is a bit of a, you know, symbiotic relationship there too, but too often access determines the type of conversations we have. And I'm excited to see that the academic film world cares about these movies, even if it's not really making a ripple, you know, with general audiences and general film critics in the same way. Yeah, I completely agree. And I will say that one of the great things that this podcast opportunity afforded me is that it educated me and alerted me to the fact that there is actually a Crimson Rivers TV, TV show yep. that came out two years ago and is available to stream on Amazon Prime if you have, I think it's called the PBS Masterclass account or something like that. And... Uh, and one, I was like, oh my God, there's a Crimson Rivers TV show. How did I not hear about this? No one wrote about this. No one spoke about this. This was nowhere to be found. Two, how did I not know it's streaming? That is incredible. I am going to seek this out. And three, what the hell is PBS Masterclass? Yep. Like, is that, the new, is that the new Quibi? Is that the new Peacock? I think it's like a like a like a classy quibby, right? Like it's a it's it's Tubi it's Tubi for people with uh, postgraduate degrees, right? Yeah, it's it's Tubi determined, I think. Ooh, oh, boo! Heyo. <laughs> well, I think that we have effectively talked, um, and I'm going to do it one more time because it's fun. The Crimson Rivers Two: Angel of the Apocalypse to Death. Um, it is unfortunately a film that you can't stream for all the reasons we talked about. But it is not expensive to order online. There are plenty of copies of this movie on available on eBay and in video stores near you. And I, if anything that we said resonates with you, I really think you should spend $5 and buy it on eBay because it is a trip. Buy both of them. They're both five bucks. Buy them both on eBay and watch them both because hopefully someday these films are going to be a bigger part of our cultural conversation than they are. They're just, they're a lot of fun. If the name on them was David Fincher, we would revere them to high heaven. Um, but John, I just, I want to say thanks for coming on, man. I want to say thank you for bringing us to this film and giving me an opportunity to see this movie for the first time in 20 years, the first one, and really dive into the second one. I promise, I swear to God, I never would have watched this film if it wasn't for you. There is no chance in heaven or on earth that I would have seen the Crimson Rivers too, if you hadn't come on the show and recommended it. And I feel like my life is much better for having watched it. <laughs> well, I'm very happy to hear that. It was a pleasure. I'm just, as I said, I'm thrilled that this is going to hopefully convince more people to seek these out, to give them a shot, and hopefully they will then, you know, use their voice to spread this to their friends, to their family, and it's it will start a a resurgence of appreciation for these films as small or as big as that resurgence might be. Well, this is the part of the show where we give you an opportunity to promote yourself. So, you know, we, we've talked about the triumvirate that you are, critic, producer, executive. If people are interested in seeing what's going on in your world, um, the projects that you're involved with, the stuff that you're amplifying, what's the best social media for you, buddy? How do people seek you out? The best way is honestly my Twitter account, just at Jonathan Barkan, and there I am. That's so easy. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> I like to make things as easy easy as possible for people i like it yeah yeah donato speaking speaking of easy um twitter names why don't you uh why don't you tell people how to follow you you can follow me at donato bomb on twitter letterboxd and instagram 
And you can keep up with my Sundance coverage, which is currently making me very sleepy. <laughs> As for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Um, you can check out the work we're doing over at CertifiedForgotten.com. We've got a lot of really cool people writing a lot of really cool stuff. Um, and we are, if you listen to the mid-episode promo, you know we've got a very special episode coming up at this year's Real Love Film Festival as well. So we encourage you to go to Real Love Film Fest. Dot com, I think I'll make sure that I have that right when I actually publish this um, and get your tickets for that and for some of the other films that they're showing as well. But John, again, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. And uh, next time we're going to, we're going to make you, we're going to make you choose something even bigger budget and less known. I don't know how you're going to do it, but that's going to be the criteria. You know what? I will take that challenge on once again. Thank you both so much for having me. Donato, take us off, man. Crimson Wayne. Thank you.